What defines us at our essence? How do we get beyond seeing just the surface of things? Can we look beyond space and time? This week, philosopher and teacher Richard Lang on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Hey, Andre, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. I'm tired living life. All right. So I have a question for you. Um, sure. What is it that you feel defines you at your core? Oh, God. Um, dude. Dude, man. <laughs> Space kittens. <laughs> um, I think energy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What defines you at your core? Uh, energy. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that defines all of us at our core. The question is, is how do we know that? Um, and so let me, let me ask you another way, another way of framing this, which is how do you understand the energy that defines you at your core? You're asking some deep questions. Yeah, I know it's deep questions early in the morning. But listen, this is kind of what our next speaker gets at, which is yes. how do we actually get in touch with that sort of ineffable quality that's sort of within us that's very, very hard for us to articulate and otherwise understand. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about Richard? Richard Lang is coordinator of the Shawlin Trust, the UK charity set up in 1996 to help share the headless way as widely as possible in the world. He first saw who he really was when he attended a workshop with Douglas Harding in 1970. He's committed to making this vision as widely available as possible. He has written two books, Seeing Who You Really Are in 2003, and Open to the Source, Selected Teachings of Douglas Harding in 2005. He has also produced many videos which are available on the Headless Way YouTube channel. I came across Richard a couple of years ago when I was treading through these various waters of philosophical inquiry. And I was really struck by this guy who seemed to be so wise and so charming. And what I really liked about Richard was that he gets at some of the deepest issues that you see in philosophy and in contemplative religious traditions. But he does so in a framework that's not based on some obscure terminology or esoteric practice, but really about kind of a commonsensical way of just understanding your own experience. And so he describes a thing called the headless way, which is the notion that we never really see our own heads. And the only way we see our own heads is in, reflected in a mirror or through language or some sort of egoistic concern. And that's really a way of, if we get to the reality of our own experience, we are not our egos. We are not these reflections. We are actually something more authentic and something more coherent. And we're just our pure sense of being, which is not so mediated by seeing our own faces, our own ego ideals, our own morals. I reached out to Richard and we had a delightful conversation. So I'm very excited to share his ideas about living headlessly on Nine Questions. So Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And we're going to start with question one, uh, which is what am I? What I am depends on the range of the observer. You, Eric, through the camera, looking at me from a few feet away, so you see Richard. And I understand that, so I say, from that point of view, I'm Richard. And I accept that and take responsibility for that. Uh, but the question 
really, I think, is what am I for myself? Because everyone's view of me is different. What am I at zero? And no one can tell me. Only I am here. And when I look for myself, simply, I look down, I see my body, I see my hands, my feet, but I don't see my head. And instead of my head, I see nothing at all except everything. Instead of my head, I see the world. So I say that from my point of view, I'm a headless body with the world on my shoulders. <laughs> so to speak, a bit like Atlas, you know, or I am space for the world, or I am for you looking out of two eyes in a head. But for me, I'm looking at a one opening, one eye, a single eye that has no boundary and everything is in it. And of course, this is the opposite of what everyone else tells me I am. Tell me a little bit more about the one eye. When I look above my own uh, torso now, I don't see a face here. Uh, this is a language to articulate what you could call the first person point of view. The third person point of view is what everyone else sees of you. Let me put it into developmental terms. So I say that when I was a baby, when you were a baby, uh, pre-verbal, you had no idea yet of what, what you look like. Growing up is learning to go away from yourself a couple of feet or so. So I put it in modern language. In imagination, travel away from yourself turn around and look back at yourself through the eyes of others. From my own point of view as a baby, I have no idea what I am. I can't see myself. can't mm -hmm. see Richard. But when I go out in imagination, and it's empathy, it's developing empathy, so that through what I learn, others tell me through language or gesture, I look back at myself through their eyes and see my own face. Well, I imagine my own face. I never see it. But my parents say, this is what we see when you look at when we look at you. That is what you are. And you've got two eyes. I go, I have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's news to me. <laughs> because in my own experience, I can't see any eyes. So I call it a single eye, but it's a, just an opening. Growing up, uh, I get feedback 24-7 about my appearance, about who I am. And by the time I'm a child, I've become uh, fairly self-conscious. In other words, I'm, I'm beginning to be increasingly aware of who I am for others. I mean, it goes in stages, because the first stage is Richard is hungry, and the next one is I am hungry. So you learn to identify by stages with the one in the mirror, with the, uh, the one that others say that you are. And you can't resist it. And you don't want to. You want to join in. And the price of joining in is accepting that you are what everyone else says you are, even though you can't see it yourself. Yeah. And not only accepting that, but taking responsibility for it. So now I begin to own it and say, I am Richard. This is my voice. These are my actions. I take responsibility for being Richard. That is absolutely vital for joining society obviously. Now, by the time we're all adults, we are so deeply conditioned to accept we are what others say we are from about six feet, what we see in the mirror, 
all of that, that we overlook at the original experience of which is headless, open, single eye. And if ever we do stumble upon it, if we're a bit drunk or we've taken psilocybin or whatever, <laughs> had a shock, uh -huh. uh, and suddenly feel like we're nothing or we're spacious or we're at large, growing up is finding out which one you are, because who knows which one you are? You have to learn and you don't have a choice. I look in the mirror and I see Richard there and I say, I don't want to be Richard. And they, they say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have no choice. So I think what you are describing here is the way we most normally see ourselves is what I would describe as either our linguistic or our egoistic selves. These yes. kind of outer layers of self that come through our development and our intersections with our culture. But underlying these are sort of deeper levels of self. Um, I like to think of these as like, say, a cellular self which is there resist is an energy system that's resisting entropy or an animalistic self, which is about all of these selves coming together and conjoining to give a sense of coherence and temporality. And the, and what you're, I, I think this is what you would describe in your language as sort of the headless self here. And I'm wondering how do we then comprehend this headless experience if it's pre-linguistic? And so you and I are talking, we're using words to communicate. And I think this is maybe part of our apprehensions is when we do have these moments where we're headless and we are now in this kind of incohate experience and we freak out because we want to make it legible and we want to order it. So how do we deal with that and how do we know it without words and the, the framework and the, the habitual ways that we've been brought up to then delimit and understand our experience? Well, Douglas Harding was the man who developed this approach. And before he saw he was headless, which was in 1943, he had been working for 10 years on the question, what am I? And he had realized that, that what he was, as I said, depends on the range of the observer. And he had understood that he was like an onion in that he had layers. So if you come up to the human being, if you came up to me, I'm asking myself, what am I? And I enlist you for support, the outside observer. And you tell me, well, you're a man, you're Richard. And I say, yeah, but you're over there. Come closer. And then you say, oh, well, I've come very close now. You're just a patch of skin. I take that seriously. See, And then I say, well, come closer. And you say, oh, my God, your cells. There's your cellular reality that you absolutely need. That it, it, his... When it all comes together, it forms a person. But when you take the person apart, you're back down to cells. Well, you come up, I say, well, you're still way off. I want to know what I am here. So you come closer and the cells obviously resolve into molecules. I have a molecular level. But you're still way off and you, you approach closer. And now I'm particles almost disappeared, you see, almost nothing. And I say, yep, but you're still way off. <laughs> and you say, well, I'm sorry, I can't get any closer. There seems to be a barrier where I cannot step into your center. I say, oh, well, that's okay, because I'm here. I'll have a look myself. And I look and I see it's empty. All right. So that's where those other layers fit in. Of course, you go away and you'll see that I, my uh, individual body resolves into London. I have an urban body, which I absolutely need. Uh, but you go further away. I say, well, you keep going. 
and you say, oh, you're England. Oh, my God, you're the planet. I have a planetary body. I can't exist without it. Oh, I have a solar body. I have a galactic. You see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is one system, one living system. Now, the central reality, as I call it, this space, which has nothing in it except everything. <laughs> you can only talk about <laughs> paradox. When I see it now, I say, well, it is like nothing else. It has no color or shape. It's not in time. It doesn't have a, a width or a depth. It's just no thing. It is very unique, you see. The thing about it is when I look out at things, it's very hard to see them because I can't see the back and uh, you know, I can only see the surface. But the nothing at my center is absolutely 100% visible with no part hidden. So it's the one thing I can see clearly. And because it is timeless, it's extraordinary. You're into the world of paradox, but it's not talking paradox in terms of arguing a debate. It's trying to describe one's experience now. And I say that this space I'm looking out of, this single eye, is timeless. So this timeless space has always been here. And it was there when I was a baby. It's exactly the same timeless space. Now, my view out is very different from when I was a baby. But the place I'm looking from, so to speak, is the same clear openness in me, in you, in the dog. As an adult, I have gone through this journey like the prodigal son. I've gone away from this central reality to see myself as others see me. And I've over, been overlooking it. Now I've reawoken to it. But now I can use that all I've learned in that journey about self and other and language to articulate this reality. And articulating it, developing a language that describes it is absolutely vital. Because um, if you don't have a word for it, you won't see it almost. So my job in part is to articulate this central reality, to describe it, to share it with people, to indicate that it is available 100% and absolutely normal. And I say, if you're not aware of your true nature, you're not yet mature. Well, this leads, I think, really well into question number two, which in some ways you've anticipated, but let's explore this a little bit more, which is what is your purpose? Yes. Well, again, it depends which me you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> My purpose as a planet is to get round the sun. <laughs> uh -huh. My purpose as Richard, uh, well, I don't know if you know that idea by Kierkegaard, I think. Life is lived forwards and understood backwards. Oh, that's great. I hadn't heard that yes. before. So you only start to understand your purpose when you look back and see where you've come from and you can join the dots up. Now, I, as a boy, I, I got interested in this question, where did I come from really? And where am I going? Who am I really? And I, I didn't articulate it quite so clearly, but it happened. It, it occurred to me. And so I started searching. And uh, when I was 15 or 16, I I'd explored Christianity in my own way. And I was on to Buddhism and Hinduism. This is in the late 60s. And uh, I went, when I was 17, to the Buddhist Society Summer School in England with my brother. And there we, we met Douglas Harding. Now, I'd never heard of him. What he did was he just pointed and said, Richard, what do you see there? <laughs> Basically, do you see your face? And I, uh, no, oh my God, uh, that was me discovering what I'd been looking for. Now, the experience is simple. Some people go, so what? 
but I didn't. And who knows how someone will react? But I went, wow, that is what I was looking for. But I, of course, I didn't know half of the implications or meaning. But fairly soon, and Douglas said to people, he said, if you're interested in this, come and visit. As a friend, so I went to visit with my brother and my mum. <laughs> Christmas 1970. From then on, I visited a lot and I made friends with him and there were always people there. So I expanded my circle of friends who were aware of their headlessness and exploring living from it. And very soon, I decided that these experiments, the pointing at your no face, the looking for your single eye, the closing your eyes and finding out if you've got any boundaries, the turning around and seeing it's the world that turns and you're still all looking at someone else and noticing its face there to no face here. These experiments, as Douglas called them, because they test a hypothesis. It's very refreshingly modern and scientific in a way. They test a hypothesis that you're not what you look like. And for some reason, I just thought, those are brilliant. I want to share those. I want to share this. This, And Douglas was very clear about the importance, the value of this, what a breakthrough it was. And he was just so creative, inventing ways of sharing this and writing about it and all of that. So very quickly, I thought, uh, this is what I want my life to be about. So my purpose uh, in that sense came to me fairly young. Of course, I've lived my life and had jobs and, you know, earned a living and all of that. You know, you live your life. But now I had this uh, awareness at my center and many, many friends. And my Douglas used to say, this is about making friends, not about being a teacher and a student. So there's a non-hierarchical equality about it. I accept, you see, Eric, that you're looking out of a single eye now and that we're face to no face and that you're not in this Zoom meeting. The meeting is in you. Now, you may not put it like that, but I can't imagine it be any different from the basic way that I'm experiencing it. So from here, for me personally, it's a matter of just sharing this and enjoying friendship because everyone responds to it differently. It, uh, it strikes me that this is, I mean, what you're describing is very akin to a lot of Eastern contemplative traditions and ideas, but it's in a framework that I think is less esoteric and more yeah. just, you know, available to sort of ordinary experience, uh, which I really like about it. It's, it's, it's very powerful in that way. The thing that often people um, comment on is when they see the headlessness and recognize it in some form or other, and if they have been studying the scriptures, whether Buddhist, Christian, or whatever, they go back to the scriptures and they say, oh my God, now I can understand them. Before headlessness, you read the scriptures to see if you've got it right. After headlessness, you read the scriptures to see if they've got they've it, got it right. right. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You are the authority on you. You see, also, awakening to your true nature is awakening to a great mystery. This spaciousness that one is, this silence, I say, is just incredibly creative. All the time, coming up with things, coming up with the world. And uh, you can't pin it down. You can't limit it. It's it just, uh, just a, a wonderful discovery. The silence that you describe, I've had through meditation. That's my way of accessing it. One of the challenges for us is actually 
just being with that silence. We're habituated to find stimulation, to seek distraction, to figure out what this egoistic self is supposed to be doing and needs to be doing and you know how it needs to be valued by the world. So how do we access the silence? When you point back at where others see your face, I mean, I mean, literally with your finger and you point back, you notice that your finger's pointing at nothing. Uh, I don't see a face here. I don't see any shapes. But I would call that space also silence or stillness. You see, when I point back at my face, that's the inward direction into nothing, nothing, space, silence. But if I then point out and I, or just look out at, at you now, Eric, that's the outward direction. So there are two directions. It's provisional. The outward direction into the field of view, the inward direction into this emptiness that contains the field of view. Or the view out is out into sounds and the view in is into silence. So just as your face is happening in my no face now, I'm space for you, which is amazing. Uh -huh. uh, so also our two voices now are happening in one consciousness. So I hear your voice, then I hear my voice. I call one outside, you know, yours, and one inside, I suppose, of mine. I don't actually find a dividing line. It's all happening in the one silence. So I think that uh, as soon as you understand the direction, where to find the no face, where to find the silence, you realize it's always there and it is not disturbed by any sounds or thoughts. Try this experiment. If you look at your hand, then I say, you see, I see my hand and I can feel my hand. I'm moving the fingers together. And I trace, come back up my arm looking and I see my shoulder and then I see my arm comes out of a headless body. See, uh, it comes out of the space here. Now, if I make my hand tense, then I feel tension in my hand. Does that tension affect the space? Well, that's for everyone to try out. But I say, no, it doesn't. The tension arises in the space, but the space itself is stress-free. So then I relax. And it's the same with all this noise in terms of thoughts and feelings and commentary or whatever. It's all going on in the, in the view out, but it does not disturb the silence or the stillness or the space or whatever you want to call it. I think... Part of the challenge that a lot of people, and I would say myself, feel is like when I'm in a, what I would describe as sort of a, a compressed emotional state, it's very hard for me in that compression to access the stillness and the silence. The compression is, it's so heavy. And then the consequence is the, the, the mental chatter is so relentless. Part of my own contemplative practices have been trying to learn how to, in the midst of that compression, find space and create this kind of space. And I'm curious if you can share your own experience with how you've been able to cultivate that capacity. Was there a crystallizing moment for you, or is this something that's been happening gradually over time? Probably both. Uh, uh -huh. I think there's two sides to it. First of all, if you're stressed, do whatever you can to relieve the stress. It's sensible, isn't it? You know, talk to someone or go for a run or now, I find that the experience of my true nature, this headless space I'm looking out of now, the single eye, is always available at will, that nothing can stop me seeing it. As you uh, go on practicing awareness of this, so to speak, you get realizations. In terms of understanding and behavior, 
it takes time to assimilate. It's not degraded. It's not got better. It's mm -hmm. not gone away. It doesn't take somehow long a long time to get back to. You don't have to crank yourself back up or down into that stillness. It's just there. So after a while, you stop taking your spiritual temperature. In other words, you stop worrying about being there all the time because you realize it's there all the time. There's a relaxation and a joy that comes with that. And that is a step. I don't think you can force these things. You, you, you can't force maturing. There's two ways of meditating, which I noticed. You can either be aware from the beginning of your true nature, and meditation is about just being quiet and still with that. Or you can not be aware of your true nature and spend the whole time looking for it. And you don't quite know what you're looking for. And then you get a taste of it and then it's gone. And so I say, be aware of your true nature and stay with it. And you will discover what a great resource it is. And how the fact that it's always there, that you can't do it wrong, that it's the same in everyone, but everyone's response to it is different. This is deeply freeing. But I would say when you say that it, you know, when you're under stress, it's really hard to be aware of that stillness or that space. I would say, well, you now have a very interesting challenge. I understand what you're talking about, but when you do feel under stress and small and constrained, you acknowledge that, you do what you can, as I said, to alleviate that. But then in that moment, look to see if you really are. And I say you're not. However, the small print is that it will not necessarily or usually make the stress go away. Because stress takes time to unravel. That's normal. But I challenge anyone, if they say, oh, it's too stressful for me to see who I really am, I say, can you see your head? No. Well, well, there you go. In the quiet, there's just, there's deep pain, for example. Um, and part of being in the quiet means opening oneself up to something that may be really challenging or may be really difficult. And how do we understand that? How do, how do we comprehend that? I do not take the view that in order to see who you are, you must somehow get rid of your conditioning or recondition yourself. Simple as it is, available as it is, seeing your true nature, and it is, that if you stay with it, it will seep into every area of your life and affect you at every level. You will recondition yourself or it will recondition you. You will be forced in a way to adjust to this new reality of who you really are with the feeling of being at home rather than looking for home well on this i'm you've anticipated some of these other questions uh i think in your answers this far but i'm curious to see how you would respond to these are some of the standard questions i've been asking mm -hmm. guests on the podcast so i'm i'm now intrigued to hear you respond to them directly. And I'm going to go to, um, so maybe we can skip to question four, which is, what are your dreams telling you? Ooh, I would say, you know, one obviously can answer it in different ways. I would say the dream of who I really, really am. This is a complete paradox. I love it. The dream of who I really am was to be. 
and I am now fulfilling my dream. I am. Now you say, well, how can you dream about being before you are? I say, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes it all the better, you see. Uh -huh. Now, having achieved being, having achieved my deepest, most wild, outrageous dream, what do you make yourself out of as who you really are? You, you, you magic yourself out of nothing. I mean, it's just after that, what is not possible? Tuning into the total mystery that you are. And I think, I suppose, actually, at some level, I would be very happy to infect others with that thrill. I think I remember the actual day when it was like a light going on. I just thought, oh, my God, I need not have been, and I am, and self-evidently I am. That's just the joy that knows no variation and casts no shadow. You know, when you dream and sleep, we always identify with the the observer of the dream. But the dreamscape is also us too. Everything that is in the dream is us. We are as much the monster chasing us in the dream as the person being chased. And as you were speaking, I, I think there's something similar to that when thinking about your own aspirations too, that we, we oftentimes think of our aspirations as somehow another separate from us or away from us. And in, in fact, true realization is realizing your aspirations are you and in that way, that they're not, they're not so separate from you, that they are part of you. Well, you see that that fits in with what I was just going to follow up with after this thrill of realizing that I am, is that I have uh, just the natural desire to tell someone when something good happens to you or something bad, you, you want to share it. But in a certain sense, from one point of view, it's all a dream and there's no one else. So who can you tell? A very familiar story in myths and so on is you arrange to forget who you are and to become convinced you're a character in the dream. And that goes along with being convinced that all the other characters in the dream are actually real. <laughs> <laughs> but, you see, the brilliant thing about that, I mean, who thought that one up? That's just brilliant. The brilliant thing about that is that you've now got someone that you're convinced is real to talk to. Uh-huh. Of course, you only talk about human things because that's all you know until you wake up to who you really are. And then you realize it's all within you. But in a certain sense, you're back to everything's a dream and everything is me. But you can't get rid of this feeling that you're also a person and others are real. I say this is not a mistake. You don't have to get rid of it. That was the whole point was to develop this sense of separateness and otherness so that you've got someone who you believe is real to share with, you see. But now that you're aware of your true nature, you can share who you really are with the other who is not you, yet is you. Why don't we go to the next question, which is, uh, I think you've touched on, but I once again, I'm curious to hear you say a little more about, which is, who's writing my life story? Life is lived forwards and understood backwards. I mean, you start to think about it and... You can't pin it down, can you? But I would say that the more that I go on, you know, the longer I live, the more I am able to enjoy, not always by any means, but enjoy the experience of not knowing what I'm going to say next 
or not know what I'm going to do next. And that because I'm recognizing it comes from this mystery, this creative source that we all are. So I would say that I move back and forth between thinking it's Richard in charge <laughs> and it's the one I really am in charge. And I think that swing is life. But I think the um, most exciting prospect is trusting who one really is and seeing what it comes up with. I would say in the end, it's the one who is living my life and your life and our lives. Yeah. I want to ask you another one here then, which is what makes me happy? Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Next question. <laughs> now, let me... Uh... Sharing awareness of our true nature, it's so mysterious because you're seeing it as my seeing it. There's no dividing line. It's just the most weird and wonderful thing for the one that i really am to share its own wonder at its own reality and the mystery of it all that that's happiness and um you see i go around sharing you know i do workshops i share the experiments and i have developed my own style of sharing over the years radically that has developed alongside my own development of taking in what this mystery is and how it is 100% in everyone and it is available and visible at will and uh, it is sane and it's not a you know a business and it's not a, a long preparatory process to eventually where one or two people might get there that is nonsense and it needs to be called out uh, you can see your true nature now and I have great joy in being given the job of sharing this and of just being ahead of the curve. Honestly, that's what I would say. The experiments are way ahead of the curve. This is a question, and I think you've you've brought, in some ways you've answered it, but I'm going to go ahead and bring it up again, uh, which is, what is it that keeps me from living better? I think that once you see who you are, which you do, which I do, your home, your home, and you can't do that any better. Now, your life as it unfolds is incomplete, and you can get better at the piano, and you can get better at whatever, you know. But that's life, and that's that's till the day you die. I, I think that for me, in a way, probably the rest of my life is saying yes to that and sort of trusting it and that it will show me what to do. Start to digest and take in the fact that you are home and you'll never be more at home than you are now. Well, I think that's, you know, the, the challenge is we, and this goes back to happiness. I think we oftentimes think that happiness is something that we achieve. So if I only do X, Y, and Z, if I only find that perfect partner, if I only get that perfect house, if I only had that great job, get all those ducks lined up in a row and then everything will be fine and all of my pain and all of my uncertainty and all of my discomfort will just be gone and everything will just be easy sailing and of course that's not how life works but nevertheless 
we're so for whatever reason conditioned and i don't know if that's an if it's a natural inclination or if it's something our culture tells us but there's this compulsion and maybe this is a distinctly american thing too i don't know that we you know we just like you you meet your ambitions and then you will be rewarded in some ways or you do the right thing and you will be rewarded and all of that badness will will disappear and it's a hard thing to unlearn well, I don't think you uh, need to or should un unlearn it, and it's not just an American thing. You see, I, I say one has always been the space. You were a space as a baby, and as a baby, I, I don't think you had any ambition. You, you just were, you know, but you were conditioned into seeing yourself as a person that has to get from A to B, and you need to get your ducks lined up. And you need to improve all these things. You need to learn to walk, talk, you know, whatever. Now, this uh, is obviously, to me, it's just obviously vital. And it's what life is about. Uh, and the problem comes, I think, that when you wake up to who you really are, there is this sort of idea about that now everything is achieved and you shouldn't have ambition. You should just rest as who you really are. You've swung back to the baby in a way. And you're saying that one end of the paradox is true and the other is false. I say both. Now yeah. you enjoy both, you see. And in fact, the recognition that you are already happy, that you're already home. And a rather nice image is you're sitting by the fire with your feet up. At the same time, you're out on a ship with a wind behind you on an adventure like Odysseus. You've got both. And awareness of being at home and safe as who you really are uh -huh. empowers you to do things, empowers you to go and learn the piano. It is life-affirming. Yes. I like that. I like kind of breaking through those kind of false dichotomies. Yes. <laughs> Well, why don't we move on to the next question then, which is, how do I find love? Dating.com, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a bit like, you know, how do you see that faint star in the night sky? Don't look directly at it. If you relax, it, you'll see it. You chase it and it runs away, I, at least. You know, that's my experience. I think that if you sort out the basic question of who you are, if you sort that one out and you sort of settle that question in a way, because it's just self-evident, get that straight and everything else will fall into place, including love, I think. Growing up is learning you're behind a face and they're behind a face and you're hidden from them and they're hidden from you and all of that. And this is becoming aware of yourself as an individual. It's individuation. And it's respecting the individuality of others, subjectivity of others, all of that. Now, when you awaken to being not behind a face, that doesn't all go out the window. I mean, how could it? it, it it's conditioned from day one. But it, why would you want it to? I think it is just what life is. And it just, it, you know, there it is anyway. But now you have this inner awareness if you like that although you're operating with that mask you you know that for your students you're a professor or your kids you're a dad and you act 
aware of that and in that role. But now you know that's not what you really are. And that privately you have space for them, you see. And uh, you, you, are, you are them, you're room for them. Now that brings into the equation of your relationship something powerful and important and loving, really, and respectful. If I just pay attention and I hear your voice and my voice, well, of course, I, I you're over there in Chicago and I'm here in London and we've just met each other and all of that, you know, you know normal. But at the same time, I'm hearing, if I attend, you see, if it, if it occurs to me, your voice and my voice are in one consciousness. So the one is talking to itself. Does that mean now I know what you dreamt last night? Of course not. You, know, you have this paradox of not knowing the other, which is what it's all about, you know, the mystery of the other. But you also know who they really are and who you really are. And uh, it, it, it's just turns everything upside down and inside out. Two things. One is that if it's true, we take it on board. I mean, in the long run, hopefully anyway, but usually we take it on board. Secondly, we take it on board, not just because it's true, because it works better. It actually works better. So th this is to be, I would say, tested out. Does it work better in your relationships not only to be aware of the mask and the roles that you're playing and all of that, but to be also aware that you are face to no face and you are empty for the other, you know, which is basically unconditional love, you see, except you can't, cannot but accept the person as they are in this space. In that case, is, is that vision of love kind of a, an awareness of one's unity of being with another person or other, every other living thing? Well, you see, I would say that you've just expressed it in your way, and I go, that's a good way of putting it. Uh -huh. I would I would not have put it like that, but you have, and I take that on board. So that that is the joy of having friends who are aware of their true nature, because they'll say, so this is the way I see it. And I go, well, I've never seen it that way before. That's good. Why don't we move on to our last question here? Uh, question nine, where am I going from here? The fridge. <laughs> Chocolate in the fridge. <laughs> At the level of who I really, really am, I'm not going anywhere. Now, that is then balanced by seeing what emerges out of this home, which is unpredictable. Now, I've got, you know, I've got some ideas. Uh, I, um, I'm writing about, I'm working on a biography of Douglas Harding, which is just so interesting. See it. So there's that. I learning the piano. I, I don't think you want to hear all these things. <laughs> sure. No, 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 that's good. Good, good. Well, you see, also, the more I go on and the nearer to death I get, then obviously I realize there's less time. And I think this makes one bolder, you know, because I mean you, you can't say it when you're dead. <laughs> yeah. So I am blessed uh, with the job of sharing the headless way. I mean, amongst others, you know, but at least I'm on the team. And I realize, I say how brilliant this is. And, how, you know, and I, uh, I'm learning with it all the time. I hope that that continues, you know, and this conversation with you is part of that unfolding journey, really. Yeah. I would put just a word in for Douglas Harding's first major book on this, which is called The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth. 
it has an introduction by C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, who called it a mm -hmm. work of the highest genius. It's now available on Amazon. Now, this is a game changer. And I, I just say this because uh, this should really, I say, be flagged up in every philosophy department uh, in universities as just the the overlooked book of the millennium. Well, um, a delight to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Really, it really, really, this was very special for me. And so thank you so much for your generosity and uh, particularly just your openness to a kind of a random call from out of the blue. <laughs> 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 well i've got my wallet specially uh, you know so you can't reach out and get it I, I'm, I'm not quite sure who you are but <laughs> no a delight i'm joking if you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show there's another university of chicago podcast network show you should check out it's called big brains big brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.